Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to be talking about what I like to call the universal language hypothesis, which is a very fancy term for this idea that floats around where people will describe music as the universal language. And it's a thing that a lot of music academics and a lot of music experts get uncomfortable with. I certainly do. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to put too many words in anyone else's mouth, but like uh, I wanted to dissect a bit of that right off the bat. One thing I do want to acknowledge is that like, I am aware and I assume Noah is aware too, that when people say this, it's poetic, right? It's not meant to be a literal statement of fact. And so well, we may get into the question of like, in what ways music is and is not considerable as a language, The point isn't to prove that this is wrong. The point is more to examine the underlying idea beneath the claim that is a little less poetic and a little more reflective of actual belief. Yeah, it's said to varying degrees of poeticism, right? Like, I think that there's some people that take it more seriously than others. But yeah, we understand metaphor. But yeah, yeah, I think I think in general, kind of to to lay it out there before we get into talking why about why we don't like it um <laughs> you know and <laughs> that sort of thing like generally it's the idea that you know you can get a bunch of people from different cultures and get them together and play some songs and they'll all dance together there's certain expressions yeah. of human emotion that tend to be very common and certain patterns of different kinds of music tend to be used for different kinds of functions in, you know, folk musics and in popular musics and stuff like that. Like there, the idea is that music itself can be used to bring people together and allow people to communicate emotional ideas with each other that they otherwise might not be able to. Yeah, that there's sort of some universal ideas about music that, you know, you just, you don't have to learn. People just sort of get it. Yes. You know, and again, like like Noah said, this can be taken to more or less extreme viewpoints. Like, I remember at one point, I believe to this day, one of my most popular tweets of all time was me dunking on Richard Dawkins for basically tweeting, like, it's amazing how you can get musicians from all over the world, give them all a piece of sheet music. They've never met each other. And they can make beautiful music together. And it's like, no, they can't unless yeah. they can read sheet music. Like, <laughs> I, I think it's less the language part of it and more the universality part of it that is both what people latch on to in a more genuine sense and also what I think most music academics that I know would object to. Yeah, I think the I think the universality, like I, I get the appeal of it, you know, as somebody who loves music and has made a living in music, we all love to talk about how important music is and the idea yeah. that there is a sense of universality, it, it kind of creates a humanistic view, you know, it's this hope yeah. that deep down in our core, you know, we are all really the same, which I do believe there are things that are universal, but I don't necessarily yeah. believe that music is one of them. I think it can often tap into these universal things. The view is one that I think it, it often comes from the right place, even if it's misinformed. It, it comes from this desire to believe yeah. that there is there is something that unites us all and music is part of that. And when we, you know, participate in music, we're tapping into something kind of primal and instinctual and something that resonates on a deeper level than any of our 
constructed societies and understandings. I think that that's the the promise of it. And I do think that there's there's ways that people can connect on those sorts of levels, but I don't think, and I think some people can connect with each other on music yeah. with that those levels, but I think the the universality, it really does not, I don't think it pans out. <laughs> there is an extent, to the best of my knowledge, every culture on earth that I'm aware of has some musical tradition. And so there is yes. an extent to which like the idea of music can be viewed as universal. I think that that's sort of at the base of a lot of this in a way that I, I think is true to the best of my knowledge. It is true that every culture or, or almost every culture that we found seems to have music. But when you get into that yeah. argument, it's also a bit of a chicken or an egg thing because unique musics are one of the things that we use to define cultures as unique cultures. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like music is one of the one of the cornerstones of folk folk culture. So when you say, like when people say every culture has music, there is a degree to which part of the reason is because music is one of the things that we point at and decide, okay, this culture gets to be a culture because they have their distinct music. So it's, it's kind of a positive yeah. feedback cycle. But I, I mean, this yeah. is not to discount the fact that like, like, you know, anthropologically speaking, music is incredibly common. And, you know, we have evidence of like musical instruments are some of the oldest man-made tools that we have yeah. in the fossil record and all of this stuff. So like there, there is a lot of people really like love making music, but it's also something where it is not it's it's not quite as simple as all cultures make music when music is one of the things by which we define who gets to be a culture. Oh, absolutely. The analogy I was going to make, the reason I bring it up is I do want to recognize yeah. that at the bottom of this, as with so many things, there is truth, yes. right? There is yeah. an extent to which it appears that music and musical expression as sort of generic objects separate from specific cultural contexts if not universal, then very common among the human experience. The analogy I want to draw here is to the idea that, you know, many cultures at least have dragons. Yes. This is this is a thing yes. that, you know, you, you see people talk about, and like, and a lot of this is speculated as like, oh, maybe there's some like shared cultural origin. And, you know, people who are really want to push some questionable ideas might go to aliens or whatever. But a lot of it is just that. Europeans had their idea of dragons and showed up and took anything that looked like a big lizard and was like, oh, that's basically a dragon. Yeah. Right? Like, you look at your traditional European dragons versus traditional Chinese dragons, and they they look different, they behave different, they have different motivations. And they have very different cultural associations. Exactly. Right? And so, like, ba the only actual thing that's shared is that people looked at a lizard and was like, what if that was big? Yes. Or possibly, you know, there are some speculation that maybe some, like, dragon myths come from dinosaur bones. I don't know how credible that is. Uh, yeah. But, like, that is a speculation at the very least. But all you need to get a dragon is to have a local lizard and to be like, what if that was big? <laughs> so... In, in that same sort of way, it is true that basically every culture that I'm aware of has something that I would call music. But I'm sort of coming at that from the assumption that, that's sort of self-reifying, basically. That's sort of self-affirming in that if I have the idea that every culture has music and I have some ideas about what music is, I can find something that that culture does that looks like 
what I think of as music and is, has some of those characteristics. And I can be like, eh, that's basically music just with these differences. And so it, it's easy to genericize my idea of music into a much broader conception in a way that allows me to say that someone else is doing it too. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the tough things with that is that like, like we've talked about before, the definition of what music yeah. is, is a little, it's up for debate. I think the problem is that what often happens in things like this is, I, I think it, it is true that a lot of these, like, like there's a lot of different modes of music and things like that. But what often happens is rather than looking at a culture with a different expression of music and using that to broaden your own, you know, or one's own personal definition of what music is and what counts as music, often what tends to happen, especially in the history of with a lot of this um, like European settler yeah. colonialism, what tends to happen is they tend to take the things that are tied, you know, you know that that fit within their realm of music and call that music and treat that as a separate thing. Even the the idea of division between music and dance is a very arbitrary division. Yeah. And you know, to look at song without dance in a lot of cultures, just it it doesn't really like you know, it's a division that is similar to the division between like rhythm and melody or something like that, yeah. right? As I understand it, and I'm not a, yeah. an anthropologist. The idea of like how broad what we count as as music is, you know, there, there's also, there would also be, you know, you could make an argument that, you know, in our, in our Western singer-songwriter culture, you could make an argument that lyrics are a separate thing than music. You know, it's it's not an yeah. argument I'd make, um, and I know it's not one you'd make. It's it's an argument that a lot of like music theorists do, yeah. at least implicitly make. Like they they wouldn't necessarily say that, but again, and this is a thing that I certainly did early on in my uh, music theory journey, and still like instinctively kind of do to an extent is separate it out and be like, okay, but the lyrics aren't really part of the music. Uh, they're, they're a thing that happens on top of it, which, I, again, I don't think is true. It is not just an argument one could make. It is a behavior that is reflected in the way a lot of people discuss music. Yeah. Dance can be seen in a lot of cultures yeah. as, like, lyrics. Like, like, how could you possibly separate that from music? And the other thing, yeah. too, I think, when we look at sort of universality of music is even things like how we conceptualize music like the idea of the idea of a song is it seems like a very sort of base thing but what a song is can be any number of things and again like dragons like we we have this idea of songs and we point at other things and say okay well they started playing this thing and then they stopped it after a time that's a song but in reality yeah. you know there's lots of songs that are multiple songs, like we've talked about. Yeah, and there's the song that never ends. And... Yeah, exactly. And then there's <laughs> other musical practices, um, like like ragas and things like that, that yeah. are their own sort of unique musical practice. That really, uh, it really just does not fit one to one with anything that exists in Western music. Right, and that's sort of 
why I'm bringing up why I brought up the dragon thing is like I'm not making the argument that the the default instinct is to look at different cultures doing different musical things and broaden our idea of what music is. I think yeah. like you're saying, the instinct historically at least has been to look at what other cultures are doing and narrow that to fit what we think music is. Yes. And to be like, this is close. And, you know, this is famously, like, we talk about rugs, and the idea gets thrown around all the time that, you know, rugs are basically scales. And, you know, they're different. They're different in different ways. But, you know, they're, they're, they're comparable to scales. I am not enough of an expert on Indian classical music to really speak with authority on the ways that that's not true. Yeah. It is unambiguously a much more complicated question than that lets on. Where I know on stuff like rogs and uh, rhythms in Jamaican music is yep. another one. And a lot of these sorts of things, like my experience with them is trying to understand them and just not being able to because I yep. don't have the cultural framework, which is a real like point against the universality of music is I can I can appreciate a song, you know, that operates in the Indian classical sort of like form of cultural expression. I can listen to the that music yeah. and I can appreciate it. There is a you could say a universality to that, which we can get into that the existence of that universality later if we want yeah. in appreciating it in the way that those who create it make it. I can't do that. And I can't, it's something I have tried to have. I've tried to wrap my head around. I, it's not like I've done like yeah. deep scholarship of it. Like I'm sure if I wanted to like, you know, go study sitar in India for a year, I might have a better idea, but like, like in, in doing research and trying to understand it is something that just, it evades my cultural understanding of the ways that music operates. Yeah. I think a lot of that is like, for me, my experience is that, you know, I, I can come to these different kinds of music and appreciate them, right? Like I can listen yes. to Indian classical music and be like, oh, this sounds cool. Uh, and I can listen to different pieces and like, oh, these sound different. But like, I like you said, I don't know that I can get them. Like, I think there are certain musical gestures in, say, hard rock and heavy metal that I am just intimately familiar with. Yeah. Like, I know what it means when you do a rhythm stop. I know what it means when the vocalist jumps up to a higher register right before the chorus. Yeah. I know, like, all of these things very intuitively. And so I can do a very fine-grained differentiation between different pieces of music. If I listen to Indian classical music, again, I can tell that I'm listening to different pieces, but, like, I don't have, like you say, the cultural background. Like, I, I can appreciate it, but I don't get it. Yeah. Right? Like, I I get my reaction to it, but I don't have the nuances to really dive in and be like, oh, this is why. Or even, even not necessarily dive in and actively explain. I think this is a thing that is, for most people, at a base level intuitive with your music that you're familiar with you learn what these gestures mean yeah. and you hear them and you have reactions to them. If you listen to styles of music you're not familiar to, if you listen to, you know, gamelan or Tuvan throat singing or whatever, you're not going to recognize the subtleties of those gestures. Something to kind of like frame it within our context is, you, you know, you and I and basically the whole kind of Western American musical kind of 
20th century musical canon. All of that essentially comes from the blues form. So all of us have this kind of cultural baked in understanding of what a 12 bar blues is and how it works. And even if we don't listen to a lot of blues music, people know blues turnarounds and people know the 12 bar blues form when like trying to explain what makes something bluesy to someone else, you know, like you could, you could say, Oh, you know, it, it might have the 12 bar form or, you know, there's a certain kind of guitar cadence or certain vocal things, blue notes or whatever. But, but none of those really, really explain when you hear something and you're just like, Oh, that's bluesy. And you've got a physical sort of reaction to it. That stuff that is very culturally ingrained in sort of Western musical consciousness is the idea of something being bluesy or, and similar to something that kind of grew out of blues, like in a lot of like rock or metal, the idea of something being heavy, right? Like heaviness is a lot of things, but there's a certain indication that heaviness has that is baked into those cultural things. And so somebody, some alien who's coming down you know, and listening to a blues song or, you know, some someone from an uncontacted peoples who comes and listens to a blues song, they're not going to understand what it is that makes something bluesy. You know, they might like it. They might appreciate it. And in time, they might adopt that and, you know, work it into their own canon. Just intrinsically, there's nothing about them that understands the blues like we do because everything we listen to is post blues to be clear and this is not again as always not a thing that i'm saying you're saying but like to be clear to anyone listening that goes in reverse yes, too 100 like, if i were to take you uh someone who's very familiar with the western tradition and very familiar with a lot of styles of music uh and play you the music of this uncontacted tribe or this alien species or, you know, pl- plenty of, like, well-known and established known cultural musical practices that you just haven't listened to very much, you would have the same reaction. You would you would not be able to identify what their equivalent of bluesy was because you don't know the language. There's a, uh, I have, I have this really awesome, like, vintage, like, Folkways record. So Folkways is a company that does, yep. uh, for those that don't know, like, recordings of like authentic it tries to get authentic folk music from around the world and i have this record of nootka music the nootka are a uh pacific coast uh indigenous peoples and one of the things like listening to the music it is rhythmically very weird and different to my ears and one of the things in the kind of booklet talking about this uh they talk about the ways that when musicologists first tried to sort of study Nootka rhythms, they had no idea how to count them because essentially what they were able to discover, this is coming from the pamphlet. Again, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on this. So take this with a grain of salt. But from my understanding, what they said is they said the relationship between, you know, in rhythms was not a relationship between a count a steady count throughout, but was rather each beat had a relationship to the beat before it. 
it described it a lot more like yeah. poetic strophes and stuff like that. Strophe, strophe. I don't know how to properly. I think strophes. Strophe? I believe. Yeah. In, I believe it's strophe because I, I think it's French. Yeah. So you can <laughs> drop vowels you don't want to deal with. It was super interesting to read because that's the story of someone who is a musicologist who has dedicated their life to studying musics of different peoples and goes there and encounters this thing that is just fundamentally foreign. And, you know, you can say, oh, it's just sort of counting, yeah. but with counting, there comes all of these things that we say, you know, we take universality to be, which is like, like how do you, how do you move your body to it? You know, often you'll see yeah. something that grooves and everyone kind of wants to move their body in a certain way, and that feels great, but that's often because everyone is still, no matter how sort of diverse you are, if you're listening to Top 40 Pop, if you're listening to heavy metal, if you're listening to hardcore punk, the origins of all of these things come from the same cultural folk practice. So you th yeah. you can cross those boundaries in a way where I don't know how to move my body to something that doesn't count in the same framework as I count rhythms. For like a, a like e even more accessible example, like not not to say that that was a bad example, but to bring it to something that I think a lot of people listening can really directly relate to. Think about the conversation of clapping on one and yes. three. This is a huge thing. Every musician knows like, oh, you're, you're supposed to clap on two and four. Like that's that's the thing. But like even audiences who grow up with the tradition and are familiar, but like don't have a musical background and maybe aren't like super musical, don't listen to a lot enough to have like picked up this practice, will still clap on beats one and three. And like in the actual musical culture, that's wrong. You're counting it wrong. But... It's an assumption that a lot of people make when they first approach this music, even when it is music that they they know they grew up with. So even even there, even within your own culture, there are still these like pretty basic fundamental assumptions about how music works by the people making it that don't necessarily obviously translate to people consuming it. I, I think another great example of that, I mean, I'm really interested in sort of even within the same culture where there are cultural gaps and stuff like that and one of the one of the ways yeah. places where music really really loses a lot of the universality is time um especially over modern yeah. music like uh, it's it's really interesting the number of people that i have seen sort of ask like what's the best um you know billy holiday album or what's the best yeah. Frank's, I mean, I guess Frank Sinatra kind of has albums or, you know, what's the best, even yeah. like Elvis, like, like, like the yeah. album framework. Beethoven's hottest mix yes, CD. Exactly. Yeah. It's like that, right? Like the album framework is something that only really emerged in the sixties, maybe the fifties, a couple of the earlier stuff, but like, it's really the fifties and sixties that it really emerges. And so that whole cultural context of thinking of music in terms of the album we, we've talked about this a little bit in our album yeah. episode but that that whole conception is is a fundamentally modern thing that even someone from the exact same musical culture that likes the exact same style of music 50 years ago uh or i guess 50 years ago now they'd probably get <laughs> albums that was the peak of the <laughs> album era but 80 years ago that's just a different conception yeah. and the same way, I mean, even you look at like, again, uh, 
to use the blues again, because I think it's a good example with a lot of this stuff. You even look at the ways yeah. that the ways that British people, the artists like Led Zeppelin and Fleetwood Mac and Eric Clapton and all of these, the ways that they interpreted the blues is very different from the ways that the original Delta Blues, Chicago Blues musicians interpreted it. And there is a language gap there. And I mean, one of the cool things about music is that it, the errors in translation turn music into something new, right? Like the British blues yeah. rock in sort of mistranslating the blues into this British context created this new thing. But these are people that like, they adored this sort of generation of American blues musicians, but they didn't have the cultural heritage that these blues musicians had where these blues musicians, I mean, something, a little thing that you can even notice if you listen to interviews of old blues musicians, they don't call songs songs. They call songs blues yeah. And they don't say that people wrote songs often because it's sort of just this past inherited blues tradition. When you listen to interviews with people like Muddy Waters or Sun House, or if you listen to any of the Lomax uh, interviews with all these early blues artists, they'll kind of be like, oh, yeah, this is a blues that I heard from this person. And, you know, this person, they played it down in New Orleans and... Before that, it was a holler or something like that. The roots of the blues in its kind of its origins in slavery. These cultural origins of the blues are something that was lost in translation to the UK just because yeah. there's not that experience. So even even within cultures that are very close and people playing the same music nominally, you can have these big cultural divides that change what happens. Yeah, no, a friend of mine uh, was talking recently about like how he's a musician and he was struggling to really get into Bach, found that the only way that he could, or the, the best way that he could find was to go through and put like jazz style chord symbols on Bach pieces. And that's, it's wildly anachronistic, right? Like that is not an accurate way to describe what Bach was yeah. doing. But it also works. Like, for a lot of his stuff, you you can do that, and you can get insight out of it, and it becomes a different thing, and it allows you to take it in other directions and play around with it in ways that, like, you can't if you're thinking about it in the very sort of Baroque tradition that it was composed in. Uh, and so having, having that tool is, like, it allowed him to access that music. And, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that that's not necessarily the best way to approach that music because it's not engaging with it on its own terms. It's not understanding where it came from, but it's also a way that opened it up and allowed him to find what made that music meaningful to him. And in the case of Bach, I think that's harmless, yeah. right? Like it, there are other cases where I think that's less harmless, but in that particular one, I'm, I'm not bothered by that. Uh, but like there are situations where, just sort of coming in and being like, oh, this is basically like my music, so I'm going to treat it like my culture's music, winds up not only missing nuance, but also doing damage, especially in, again, colonial contexts. Yeah. Your misinterpretation of the music is something that you can then project back onto the musical culture itself. 
yeah, often just the ability to sort of do that intentionally or not with music and to apply your cultural yeah. con context onto it. I think music as an art form is incredibly malleable. And I think that malleability yeah. can give the illusion of universality, right? Like the the, the fact yeah. that you can kind of stretch music to fit into your box kind of m makes music, makes it seem like, oh, you know, there's, there's music is this universal box when in reality it's like, no, music, music is just this malleable thing that can stretch and fit itself to any different number of vessels. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, I think again, comes down to the, like the, the defining music question where the extent to which that's true is partly informed by the fact that we have defined music so broadly and we have yes. counted so many things as music that it then becomes easy to stretch things in different directions. Whereas, you know, like Baroque fugues are not malleable into, to say, heavy metal songs. Yeah. Those are different things. And you can't have one that feels like the yes. other. You can do a heavy metal cover of a Baroque fugue if you want. I'm sure people have, and I'm sure people will send me examples. If you want to go back to an example we were using earlier, often, like like in the 60s, you had, you know, the Beatles and Donovan and a lot of these artists doing, like, trying to adapt Indian rogs into rock songs. And, you know, there was yeah. Raga Rock, except they were not proper yeah. rogs by any measure you know they were they were their own yeah. sort of their their own thing but functionally they were mostly rock songs with a sitar yeah 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 no that's that's definitely a good example i'm sort of transitioning to uh one of the things that i think tends to bother me most about the sort of universal language hypothesis and i think bothers a lot of music experts most is what it tends to reduce to what you tend to see afterwards is sort of a reduction to intangible, but like, what is the word I'm looking for? Unchangeable rules mm -hmm. where there are just like, there are things that sound good and that's the yes. universal part. And other cultures will do all sorts of different things with those things that sound good, but there is a correct set of things that sounds good. Yeah. It gets into, it gets into the, the kind of music as science or, math approach yeah. which you know there's lots of cool things that you can do approaching music as math but that's not the only yeah. way that music can be yeah no it's it's one of those yeah it, it lends this sort of unearned credence to those mathematical models because you know if, if i can describe this thing with numbers like this this is a big thing in tuning this is this is a huge question in like tuning theory and by question, I mean just basically unquestioned assumption, if I'm being honest, with a lot of the tuning theory I've seen, at least Western tuning theory, that there's just this idea that, oh, you know, the best intervals are the ones with nice, simple frequency ratios. Just intonation was right. It's the overtone series. Google it. And so we have this idea that these are the good sounds. And then anyone who's doing a different thing is intentionally doing not the good sounds. This is a big thing in like academic discussion of the blues, where there's questions of like, oh, are, is the blues intentionally dissonant? Or is the does the blues have a different conception of consonants? Mm. If you default to this universal model that says that there are 
all there's this shared underlying musical structure that all humans agree on because it's the way our ears work, you have to concede that the blues is choosing to be dissonant. But that doesn't really reflect the experience that blues fans and blues practitioners have of listening to the blues. They're not just listening to it and be like, oh, all of these chords sound terrible. I love how all of these chords are unpleasant to listen to and these notes don't fit <laughs> over them. That's that's not what listening to the blues is. So clearly there is there is something going on there culturally that is overruling whatever this mathematical concept of consonance is. But even framing it as overruling still implies that that is the default assumption and that we should assume that until we look at something else. And there are just, there are enough examples of cultures that don't. Gamelan is another one that gets dragged up a lot in these sorts of discussions that just don't recognizably Western, just intonation-informed, overtone series-informed understanding of consonants, but very clearly don't think of the things that result from what that, from that set of choices as dissonant. Yeah. And so we have to figure out, like, there's this thing in Gamelan, I, I believe it's called Ombach, I believe Balinese gamelan specifically, where what you have is pairs of instruments. Like each instrument has has a, a second one that is the same instrument, but like it's tuned slightly differently, something around six hertz differently. And that, that, that number is consistent across range. It's not a relative thing. Uh, and so when you play both of them together, you create an acoustic beating effect where the two notes sort of waver in and out of phase with each That's other. That's really cool. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, not only is it like considered good in Balinese gamelan, it's considered basically necessary. The music feels incomplete without it. And so you have this idea that, you know, for me, as someone who has trained in the Western tradition and is familiar with, you know, Western tuning practices, if you have two instruments that are about six hertz off of each other playing together, that's out of tune. Yeah. That's, that's all that is. You, you tuned your instruments wrong. You did it bad. But like then to project that onto cultures where that is clearly not the case, not the assumption, not how they think about their music means erasing a lot of musical ideas. And the, the sort of cascade from that too, it operates on a musical level, but it also it also erases a lot of really important cultural identity and you know it kind of it ends up yeah. demeaning cultures that have different value systems right and it's something that yeah. it, it's not that these are exclusively why these things happen but it is part of the mechanism that enables and supports things like colonialism and it supports a sort of hegemonic Western power and stuff like that. And this feels, it feels a little like melodramatic to say this stuff, but it is part and parcel of that system. To sort of clarify a bit of the melodrama that I think is definitely easy to start getting a sense of there, which is not, again, not what you're saying, but like, I think to stress a point that you were making that this is not the cause of colonialism, yes. right? Europeans didn't do all of the atrocities that they have done across history because they didn't like how Balinese gamelan tuned their instruments. That we know of. It's possible. <laughs> I think there are much more useful historical theories for what that was. But yeah, um, it is true that 
part of that process, like a, a part of a lot of that process is sort of is military. Yeah. Don't want to lose sight of that. And this is not a military practice, but it is also an important part of maintaining a colonial structure is cultural, is enforcing your culture and pushing people towards what you want your culture to look like. I think an example of this that that's like a very clear historical example is the sort of musical response to jazz when jazz first came out, especially among American academics. This is a country that was still legally segregated. It was in the Jim Crow era. Black Americans literally had less rights. Jazz was this incredible, incredible movement of black music that defied a lot of the standards as to what was celebrated in music at the time. And it wasn't until white artists, it wasn't really until Benny Goodman, who was a white artist. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complex stuff there. And this is not to uh, entirely like insult Benny Goodman or anything. He was very talented. There's, he's Jewish and there's a lot of stuff there, but it wasn't until somebody who could pass as white like did it, th- you know, did it to a certain degree that Duke Ellington had been doing. I've, I'm working on a video on Duke Ellington right now, which is why this is all on my mind, but that yeah. Duke Ellington had been doing very similar stuff. Um, and, you know, a lot of artists had, but the acknowledgement of the acknowledgement of excellence in composing in jazz fundamentally was at odds with a system that said, black people are, you know, second class citizens are lesser. When you're able to celebrate Duke Ellington as the great American composer and as a genius on the level of Mozart or Bach, then it must follow that black people are just as capable of human expression. Yeah. Artistic excellence does have a way of making, you know, racist arguments about race and superior cultures and stuff like that, it makes them fall apart. So those who want to keep that power structure in place are incentivized to denigrate other art forms. And one of the ways that you can do that is by saying our standard of what we consider art is not just a standard. It is the standard that is empirically and mathematically proven and the standard by which everything else should be judged. So then it's easy to look at this stuff as lesser because it's not achieving our standard that's built on our cultural heritage. We have seen this as well in both yours and my lifetime replaying itself in the reaction to hip hop. Like a lot of that has been, you know, maybe in some cases a little more subtle because the cultural and legal backdrop is a little different than it was a hundred years ago. But like the same basic narrative like the whole question of like oh is rap music yep is fundamentally that same question of like you know i have defined music as this set of things it challenges my cultural understanding in order to include this and therefore it doesn't count this this is a lot of why like i tend to get very squirrely when i see like arguments for like just intonation as a universal standard. Like, I, I I, like just intonation as an idea. It's very pretty math. The numbers are lovely, and it's great. Nothing wrong with just intonation as an idea. 
but as a universal standard, as the basic fundamental concept of consonants that all music must adhere to. And, you know, and again, you see deferences here to like, oh, it's the harmonic series, like that this is just a thing that happens in nature. Like we can measure this. It, this is not a human preference. It's just math. The numbers add up. And it's like, oh, really? Like it's the one Europeans figured out? Like you, you go back, like this is this is very deep in European the, the European musical tradition. This goes back to at least the ancient Greeks. There's also evidence that other people were using it yeah. before that. Uh, Babylonians, I believe, ha we have some evidence that the Babylonians were doing some version of just intonation as well. Basically, our understanding of just intonation traces pretty directly back to the ancient Greeks, and it is a deeply rooted part of the European musical tradition for literally millennia. And it just so happens that we were the ones who got it right. <laughs> and we also happen to be the ones who took over the world. It's a really weird coincidence that those two things happen to be from the same culture. That we, we had the best idea about music and also the most guns. <laughs> like, yeah, who could have predicted? It's not the cause of a lot of this stuff, but it is a tool yeah. of advancing and maintaining those systems of oppression is making sure the art that you want to be the good art is the art that is broadly recognized as the good art. On the other side of this, there's also harm done by taking the kind of humanistic, like, you know, music can touch everyone and everyone can dance to the yeah. same song and stuff like that. Like, that is something that it's not necessarily a mentality that's built around upholding you know, the same systems if you're not holding yeah. people to the standard. But the reality is that ultimately a lot of what that is doing, especially to cultures that are more marginalized, that have different understandings of music, is it's trying to paint everyone with the same brush. And music, like we were talking about, is so intrinsically tied to culture and people's ability to culturally self-identify is really, really important, especially in kind of post-colonial yeah. contexts. Uh, it's it's a really important thing. And it's the idea of the, to, to use a, a bit of a metaphor used in a lot of kind of political and race discussions, it's the idea of the saying, oh, I don't see race, you know, like that. Yeah. We're just really touching on a powder keg stuff here. Yeah, did did not expect this one to be, uh, but you know, <laughs> probably should have knowing us. But yeah, by saying that everybody is the exact same with culture and music, it it ignores the fact and and it paints over the fact that people's experiences of the world and people's you know historical contexts and cultural expressions and stuff like that are fundamentally shaped by being different. My kind of my spin that I like on the more humanistic version of the music is a universal language thing is it's not that music is, you know, you a universal language It's yeah. that music is capable of bridging cultural gaps. Right. And yeah. I think that that's something where it it doesn't intrinsically bridge cultural gaps, but it is a very useful tool in bridging cultural gaps and creating new cultures out of that music can be used yeah. really, really well for that. And that's a lot of the like sort of, you know, that's 
one of the one of the things that I love about music and why I'm always looking at music yeah. through this cultural context. Yeah, and it's definitely like I said, I think gets to sort of the question of sort of the truth at the bottom of the idea. Yes. I, I think that there are uh, again, if you are approaching other cultures' music with humility, there is a lot of opportunity to learn about other cultures through their music in ways that are hard to do in other. Through, through other avenues. Uh, but I, I think an, another potential danger of the humanist approach uh, is that if, if we say like, oh, everyone everyone loves the same music, right? Yeah. That, that, that's an oversimplification. But like, you know, if we say like, oh, everyone can dance to the same songs, whatever, like it gives you permission to consider yourself an expert on every kind yes. of music. And it gives you permission to decide that songs you don't like in styles you don't understand are bad. Objectively bad like, is the phrase yes, in, that, this is, that yes. people often, yeah. will often do with this kind of conversation. I can come into like folk music of rural China and be like, that, that, this does nothing for me. Yeah. And so clearly it's less advanced and good music than the music I that does something for me. Because music is universal, and so if this was good music, it would affect me. Even outside of the cultural context, you see this on a generational context all of the time. Yeah, like every every time. I was literally about yeah, to, but yeah. Every time a new generation has a musical movement, the older generations are saying, "Well, this just isn't, you know, it isn't technically music." One of the famous ones on this yeah. again with the jazz one is Adorno's On Jazz, which if you oh, want to yeah. read. Yeah, mm. if you want to read a Adorno. really, really, I'll just say a poorly aged piece of uh, scholarship to to give it the yeah. most generous description you possibly could. It's it's one where, like, essentially one of the big things that uh, Adorno is saying is jazz is not music. Jazz is just the cultural industry you know and it's it's kind of yeah it's kind of like the original version of the person that's like you know you know the the rock elitist who says top 40 pop isn't real music because it was made in a factory except it it's missing a whole lot of cultural context and is even even worse than that <laughs> to go back to a story i told when we had nate on the most recent guest nate holder but yeah, when we had him on, I, I told a story about like finding the song Firebringer and then showing it to my dad. Yeah. And to be fair, like to my dad's credit, like his reaction was just like, was not like, oh, this is bad. You shouldn't like this. His reaction was like, I don't understand. Like this does nothing for me. Uh, I like that you like it. That's cool. This is not music that I'm getting into. That's a recognition on his part of the lack of universality of this sort of music. It's just like, this song clearly resonated with me in ways that I couldn't explain to him and he couldn't get. And again, to his credit, he recognized that and handled that very well compared to how he could have. But um, but also, like, you're talking about Adorno. It reminded me of a while back, I was reading a review of the clipping album There oh, Existed yeah. an Addiction to Blood. It was, it was by, I believe, someone who, like, did, like, hip-hop criticism in general, like, new hip-hop, and was, like, complaining that it was dragged down because the vocal delivery was really flat. For for anyone who's listened to the album, that is 100% yes. the point. There's a very intentional detachment that David Diggs is creating there. Like, I understand not 
relating to it, not not connecting with that kind of delivery. But it was it's so clearly the art would not have worked better if he was like jumping around and and doing like all sorts of weird, like more expressive stuff with his voice. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the goal. It's like listening to a metal album and being like, my problem is they were playing their instruments very loudly. It is like less distortion on the guitar, please. And can we please just have these guitars in regular tunings? I don't know why everything needs to yeah. be dropped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the whole thing was just like, it was really, because like, again, it was someone who I think, again, like I, I would have to go look up to confirm who this was and what their general stuff was. But it seemed to be someone who understood, who who wrote about hip hop, who, who that was their beat. But just like this particular style, like this like micro genre yeah. of hip hop that Clipping was operating in, at least for that album and for the next one, although really like a lot of Clipping across the board as well. Uh, but like, especially for like there existed an addiction to blood and visions of bodies being burned. And on those albums, it was so clear that this was an intentional stylistic choice that reflected a specific artistic vision and reflected a specific, evoked a specific reaction and evoked a specific experience. It wasn't a failure of the artist to choose to do this in the specific way. It was an oversight, which is, isn't necessarily like you don't have to necessarily accept that the artist's intent is the only way to measure yeah. music. Like that's that's a much bigger question. It's one of those things where listening to it personally, me as someone who is not necessarily super familiar with the micro genre of like horror rap, but like listens to horror music. Yeah. It was very clear what he was doing. Yeah. And it was very clear why he was doing it. And I think, again, I don't think the art would have been made better if he had used a more expressive delivery. Yeah. You know, to to this person who wasn't... I, I And again, I don't even know how familiar they were. I, I, like, I'm, I don't know anything. I don't even remember who it was. But but to, to this other person, like, they heard that and were like, this isn't working for this reason that I can pin down that I will then treat as a... Because it, it is true. It is an accurate observation that David Diggs' delivery across that album... Is flat. Is very yeah. flat. Uh, not not in terms of like pitch flat, but just like you know monotonous. Yeah. That is true. That is an accurate observation, and that's the thing is like with this idea of music as a universal language, it becomes very easy to translate accurate observations into subjective opinions in ways that don't necessarily reflect the movement that the art is a part of, reflect the experience of listening to the art to people who understand it, to take your lack of understanding and pin that on an, a, an accurate observation and be like, this observation is why I don't like it. Yeah. In a way that assumes that if that thing were different, you would like it. When I think the actual issue is that it just doesn't resonate with you. And that's always fine. It's always fine for music to not resonate with you. And this, you know, is starting to get into the question of like, what is the point of a music critic, which I am not opening that can yeah. of worms over an hour into <laughs> this call. We'll talk about it at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, we should do an episode on that because, th yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts on that yeah. as someone who has been a music critic in the past. Yeah, but it's, but it's again, I think that like, I mean, as someone who kind of is a music critic now to an extent. But I mean, I think that's I think that that's a, a good way of summing up a lot of the problems with the idea of universality in music. It, it creates I think the idea of universality is kind of fundamentally flattening. It cuts out the ability yeah. for things to be different and weird. And it's it's great 
that there's music that I don't get and people don't get and things like that, right? Like, it's great for a number of reasons, too, because I think one of the true, like, joys of music is coming to understand music that you didn't understand intrinsically. And universality kind of assumes that there's some level to which stuff can be intrinsically understood and that you just have good or bad taste against a universal standard. But so much of the joy of believing in no universal standard and believing in music's ability to bridge and teach about cultures is that if there's no universal standard, you get to dive into and explore things that don't fit into your standards and figure out why if you want to. And if you don't want to, you just don't need to listen to it. Yeah. And this is like a inevitably brings me uh, to where most listeners will probably have predicted by now, which is the shags. Yeah. I was wondering when they'd come up If there's a universal standard of musical quality, the shags are not it. I I do not know how to construct one that resonate would resonate with any, any majority of people that also says the shags are good, but also the shacks are good. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's, that's a very subjective opinion on my part. And like, part of the thing is like when, when you have those sorts of more out there tastes, which I, I don't a lot of the time, a lot of my tastes are fairly mainstream, but like when there is this sort of out there, obscure art that you enjoy, I don't, I don't want to use the word invalidating, but it's very, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it's it's like, it's very invalidating to like have, have this structure where people will come along and say like, you know, this, this is bad. Like the listen to it is like, nope, this is bad. I don't like it. And as opposed to just being like, oh, this is, this is not for me. I don't get yeah. this. I don't relate to this. And like, look, if you don't get the shags, if you don't relate to the shags, that's fair. Like that's that's reasonable. I understand how that yeah. happens. I do not begrudge anyone listening to philosophy of the world and be like, "Nope, I'm done." Like I, you know, that's that's fine. But it's also it's a meaningful thing to a non-trivial pro- portion of people. Like there's a reason that the Shags is the band that comes up in these sorts of conversations, as opposed to like all sorts of other like uh, examples. It's like for a lot of people something about their yeah. work resonates yeah. and like you know we we won't even it won't be the same thing like that's with a lot of these sorts of more out there art forms like or not art forms but like artists you have like all of these different facets that like I might latch on to the shags for a completely different reason from why Noah might uh I don't even know if Noah likes the shags but like those sorts of things where like there's anyone who listens to it might find something to grab and it might not be what I'm grabbing. But like, once you have that, once two people have that connection, we can like be like, Oh, I, I like the shags. You like the shags. Cool. What, what's yeah. your thing? And we, I, I can get a better understanding of this art by figuring out what facet of it resonated with you. Viewing the experience of enjoying music as personal rather than a reflection of some universal human experience, I think frees you up to engage with more, kinds of music also to not try and shut other people out from enjoying like you know even even if you're not doing that intentionally like i you know i know people who will like listen to music or watch a movie and just be like that movie sucks don't watch yeah it. and you know if you are someone who has very similar tastes to me and understands what i like in movies that's maybe a useful piece of advice 
You know, like I, I got that advice from a lot of people I trust about Rise of Skywalker and I've never seen Rise of Skywalker and I'm fine <laughs> with that. Like a lot of people were like, you're not going to yeah. enjoy it. It's just not going to happen. And so I was like, all right, fine, I'll trust that. And, you know, that was useful, probably. Maybe if I do watch it, I will enjoy it, but I'm, I'm not gonna. I would have to get Disney Plus at this point, I think. That's a good place to sort of leave off. I think we're we're diving yeah. uh, diving a lot into both topics we've talked about before, like taste and into stuff like criticism that we should maybe talk about in the future. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is just another one of a, a running theme that you've probably noticed if you're a loyal Ghost Notes listener, which is uh, music is complicated and subjective and the yeah. universality. I, I think I think the the universality often it feels like a promising thing to say and it yeah. feels like I get the appeal of it because it feels profound and exciting and it feels like there's a kind of great universal truth of humanity um, that you can find if you get to it. The great truth of music is that it's as diverse and as different as the peoples of Earth and it's delightful to explore that and to yeah. find things that you don't understand and things that you don't get about this so-called universal language, things that aren't universal. Yeah, no, we, we talked at the beginning about how, you know, the, the music is a universal language idea is poetic. It's trying to be, it's not trying to be a description of reality. It's trying to be a beautiful observation. It's trying to make people be like, huh, that's nice. Yeah. Where I'm at and where it sounds like you're at is that, uh, music is a diverse and multifaceted thing that no one truly understands all aspects of is actually a lot more beautiful yes, exactly to me at least it it opens up so many more possibilities and is i think a much more satisfying framework through which to view art yeah you know that's that's ultimately a lot of my objection is just that like yeah i prefer to think about it a different way and i think that it is you know more rewarding to do that but you know that's me yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you all uh, so much for joining. Um, you know where to find us. Probably at this point. And please don't, please don't tweet at me that you, music is a universal language. No, tweet at Noah that music is a universal language. Not me, but <laughs> Noah. He, he wants to know. Shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> all right, bye. All right, bye. <laughs>